I'm Jose Valin. And I'm Chris McCord. And, and you're listening, listening to The Changelog. Change Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 208, and today, Jared and I are talking to Jose Valim and Chris McCord about Ecto-2 and Phoenix Presence. It's fresh off ElixirConf Europe. We talked about our journey with Elixir and Phoenix because we're building our new CMS using Phoenix and Elixir. We talked about Ecto 2.0 and what's happening there. Phoenix 1.2, when it's coming out and what makes Phoenix presence so special. At the tail end of the show, we talked to Chris a little bit about some random support questions that came up along the way. So stick around for that. Our sponsors for today's show are Linode, Robar, and CodeShip. Our first sponsor of the show today is Linode, our cloud server of choice. Get up and running in seconds with your choice of Linux distro, resources and node location, SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors. Use the promo code CHANGELOG20 for a $20 credit, two months free. One of the fastest, most efficient SSD cloud servers is what we're building our new CMS on. We love Linode, we think you'll love them too. Again, use the code CHANGELOG20 for $20 credit, head to linode.com com slash change law to get started and now on to the show all right we're back everybody we got jose valim joining us and chris mccord and jared this is a, a show we kind of teed up back in february and basically mm-hmm. back in last march when chris first came on and he influenced influenced us around phoenix and elixir and we've drank the kool-aid and we got him back on and we're talking about some some cool stuff so what's the show about that's right so we've had a lot of listeners who've requested catch-up shows with past guests and we had jose on like you said back in february and at the end of that show you could hear us running out of time to talk about even more and so we thought well we got to get you back on and in the meantime you know phoenix 1.0 has shipped since we had chris on back in march of last year and 1.2 is on the cusp of coming out with cool new features and so we thought Let's just let's just have a whole party of, of both of them together. So thanks for joining us, guys. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. So we've been through your guys' origin stories. Uh, no need to rehash on that. If you guys, if the listeners would like to hear that, check out episode 147 for Chris's and episode 194 for Jose's. We'll link those up in the show notes. But looks like you guys just got off of uh, Elixir Comp Europe. Can you tell us about it? Sure. So, um, well, I'll start, Chris. Um so it was a really a great event. It was in Berlin, and we had 330, about 330 people. And it was really great because uh, what was really interesting to me was uh, to see how much the community has matured in this one year. Because we had last year, we had an extra conference here in Krakow, and it was a smaller event and you could say that was still much more a lot of people coming to the language their first uh contacts and uh phoenix already had some traction and people were thinking oh no now i can write my applications with phoenix right or i can use acto but they were thinking about the tool right they were thinking about phoenix they were thinking about acto and now it was really interesting at Alexia conference burning because uh you could see that the community was uh, we had a lot of new people coming and that they were at this stage uh, in, in the adoption. They were thinking still about the tools. Oh, I can write my next project with Phoenix, right? But we also saw a lot of people that they were in a lot of the talks that they were like, you know, uh, I got, I learned this tool, right? I learned Phoenix, I learned Acto, uh, I learned Elixir. But now we have this amazing platform in Vitor Machine for uh, building uh, distributed systems and solving the problems that we have today 
differently. So we had like more talks about uh, distributed systems, more talks about embedded. Um, so that was really interesting to see, you know, how much the community could grow and mature in just a one year period. Nice. Chris, anything to add there? No, I think that's a, that's a good uh, overview. I think that just like Jose said, we, we were hearing uh, people actually like using Elixir in Phoenix, like in the large, like uh, people that work at, uh, you know, large uh, banks and other like large uh, established companies that are actually getting Elixir in the door and using Phoenix uh, internally. So it was exciting to kind of see it go from, you know, this emerging hobbyist thing that people were excited about to now, you know, they've, they've actually pushed it into their companies and are, are having you know, big success with it. There was, uh, and related to that, there was something that was also really, really cool. I mean, when we are on IRC, for example, Chris and I, when you're talking to people, uh, and then Chris and I, we also talk a lot uh, about ideas, about the future, for example, what could happen in future Phoenix versions. And sometimes we, we see a convergence, right? So Chris and I think about some topics and then someone ping us on IRC and say, hey, I have been thinking about writing my application this way. And then, uh, and then we we're like, oh, that's cool because we have been discussing about it. And it was also nice to see, and we're probably going to talk about this when we talk about Phoenix later on. Uh, mm-hmm. But this was nice to see at the event. Also, people, they were giving talks about things that Chris and I, we were thinking for a while, but we were only talking between us. And then people would go and present, look, I'm already doing this and it has working this way for us. And we got good results. So that's also very interesting to see when it happens. And uh, it has happened uh, with a couple of talks as well. Very cool. Well, like Adam said uh, during the intro, we have also drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak. I think, Jose, when you were on last time in the post show, you asked, I, I disclosed that we were using Elixir and Phoenix to build our next generation CMS. And you asked why that was. And I gave the lamest answer of all time, which was basically because Chris told me to, <laughs> um, which, which is to say that, you know, when we had Chris on last March, just hearing all of his thoughts on it and why he built it the way he built it. And a lot of the things that I've experienced as a longtime Ruby and JavaScript developer um, and somebody who I make most of my living, you know, building and maintaining Rails applications, um, got excited about it. And, and Adam will attest that I get excited about almost everything that we have on. And I'm always telling whoever it is, I got to try that out. Try that. As soon as we're done, I'm going to check it out. I'm I'm checking that out. And then life happens or work happens. And oftentimes I don't get to. I thought Elm uh, had him pretty good. I still have Elm teed up. In fact, I'm looking for reasons. Um, But with Phoenix, I actually had opportunity to, to give it a shot. And I had a very small need, which was... Uh, basically, it was for the changelog. We have, you know, this, uh, we have memberships and part of membership is you get access to our private Slack room. Um, and that was all manual. So the membership would come in. We use, we use Memberful for that. And uh, we'd get an email or I don't even know if we get an email, Adam. We'd have to just go it check it every once in a while. We get an email and, and the email would get lost in the system. And then it would be like, let me add it to do. And that yeah. to do didn't get done, you know, within a day or two. And then somebody's the new member who's not getting greeted pro- properly is saying, Hey, what happened to the Slack room? And we yeah, just had a bad on system for it. Yeah. It was then bad. We feel bad. And, and I'm thinking there's no reason why this shouldn't be automated. Um, so memberful has a webhooks API and basically all we need to do is, you know, take a webhook, a post call, and then fire out to the Slack API and invite them into our channel. There's, there's no, uh, there's nothing t- too tough about it. And so because I had that really small use case, I could try Phoenix out. In fact, I 
I shipped it without even learning any Elixir. I don't think I, I was just kind of like banging on the keyboard until things happened. Um, and so I just got this really fast little win because I think, I mean, I could have got it in probably 20 minutes with the Sinatra app, but it, you know, it took me just a couple of hours. And in the meantime, um, I shipped it. I felt good about it. And then it wasn't working, of course. And so I, I went to find out why it wasn't working. It turned out that the memberful webhook wouldn't set the, the content type on their, on their post, like to application slash JSON. And so I was like, well, that's lame because now basically uh, the, the JSON parser was failing to parse it correctly. Or Phoenix wasn't picking it up for the right type. And that required me to dig into the framework just a little bit and uh, realize how it's all wired together and I also allowed me to see some stack traces, which was surprising because I'm used to stack traces that are so long that you have no idea what you know, where you are and what's going on. Um, and the stack trace was like six or seven calls through the whole web stack. Maybe it was more than that, but it felt like very few. And I was like, wow, I can actually like see everything that's going on here. This is very cool. Um, and what what I needed to do was actually just, because this is the only call we're ever going to take, and I don't care what else happens, I can just force the or the content type to always be application JSON. And so I just opened up the endpoint file and basically wrote my own little plug and plugged it right into the pipeline and everything was working and it was kind of magical. And it was very much what Chris ha had been telling me about. So that was kind of my Kool-Aid moment. I didn't dive right into it after that, but um, I thought, you know what, this, there's something here and I like it. So I guess Chris, thanks for, uh, thanks for selling me on it and, now we're now we have some support requests. <laughs> now awesome. we're here with questions. <laughs> Let me have it. <laughs> uh, so uh, just to frame this conversation, we'll you know we're, we're speaking with a certain level of you know we, a lot of times we bring this uh, childlike wonder to our conversations, and we've been criticized for that sometimes for not having like a domain expertise on every topic. And to that, you know, we would say if we had to be experts in every topic it would be a very boring show because we just talk about like two or three topics. But in this case, we do have some experience. And so our questions will be informed to a certain degree. Wow, that was really long-winded. Let's talk about Ecto. It's exciting though. I mean, that's a cool thing how Chris influenced. I mean, I think just kind of rewinding back for the listeners who listen to this, like not only yeah. does this show influence the people who listen, but also the people who host it. So that's, that's interesting to me at least. That's awesome. Actually, let's, let's, let's bypass Ecto a little bit because you mentioned Elm. Right. Mm -hmm. And and maybe Phoenix can also be a good reason for you to pick up on Elm because uh, there are a lot of people uh, doing Elixir and uh, and they are also interested in Elm. And, and I think Chris will be, will be able to confirm, but I think like uh, Phoenix and Elm, like using Elm on the JavaScript side may, is probably like the most popular option today mm -hmm. with Phoenix. Maybe I hear also a lot about Ember and those are the two I hear the most. Uh, but a lot of people talking about Elm, and, uh, and so you can see a lot of blog posts, really good blog posts, complete, you know, that goes from the beginning to the end. And uh, there, there was also some uh, integrations between Phoenix and Elm and Phoenix channels. Do you have news on the side, Chris? Yeah, I have maybe just a, a teaser. So yeah, uh, I actually gave a, a keynote at Erlang Factory this year with uh, Evan Chaplisky, uh, creator of Elm. And uh, with Elm 017, which I think just came out last week or very recently, there's new uh, WebSocket support. So now uh, I want to I want to see this, and this is not a promise, but this is a kind of promise. 
I want to have an official uh, Phoenix Elm library under the Phoenix Framework uh, organization that's a, a channels client mm. uh, to Elm with the new WebSocket integration, because I think we could make something um, pretty great as far as interop goes. Um, but we're currently exploring that. So like Elm is still on my like to learn list, but there's a couple, um, uh, Jason Steves and uh, Sonny Scroggin, there's a couple of Phoenix core team members that have Elm experience that are kind of um, exploring what that might look like. Yeah. Uh, so so expect more out of that soon. Yeah, that's very cool. I'm still I'm still looking for a reason to check out Elm and and, and to give a little bit of insight into you know the Phoenix app that we're building for the changelog. It's very boring. Um, in fact, that was one of the reasons why I felt like we could tackle it in this. We have, you know, big plans long term, and we have ideas that I think the channel stuff plays into, for sure. But in the meantime, we're just kind of replicating what we currently have, so that we can, you know, the big purpose is to have multi-tenancy in terms of podcast support um, as we develop some new shows. But it's a server-side rendered, you know, content application, and so. We're just using the the old school, you know, render the HTML with with Elixir and um, go from there. That being said, I've seen a lot of excitement around uh, using it as an API for Ember and Elm applications, and I think there's definitely some opportunities there down the road for us to check out Elm more. Yep, and there's nothing wrong with uh, server rendered HTML. I love it actually. I, I'll be the first. I'll be the first to say that. Yeah, there's nothing. Um, it's great when it's great when that's all you need. Yep, absolutely. No, and and I'm actually glad that I said that you're using it because we have like this separate HTML, Phoenix HTML library, mm-hmm. and uh, and we get like we don't get bug reports at all. And I know that people are using it because, for example, you just you just told me that you're using. We hear other people say no, we, we do you know no APIs, just render HTML and so on. Yes. But because we, we got no bug reports for a long period of time, I was like, damn, was like maybe nobody's using this. <laughs> but no, it's just that uh, it, it's actually good. It's working without a lot of uh, without having problems. And so I, yeah, I will attest to that. I, I actually I say we have support requests. I didn't say bug requests. I actually have not hit a genuine bug um, in your guys' stack yet. I've hit into all sorts of like uh, just little issues with brunch. And um, so that's a conversation that maybe if we have time at the end, I would like to to talk about that a little bit because I think that's that was an interesting decision. So basically to, to tee that up, um, Phoenix does not have its own asset pipeline that's written in Elixir or integrated tightly into the framework. It uh, uses the NPM community, specifically the default is the, the brunch build tool. Um, and it just kind of like lightly couples itself to that and you can swap it in and out and stuff. But, and I, I follow along on the tracker and the, the Phoenix, uh, issues in the mailing list, just silently watching. And a lot of the requests that you guys get are mostly brunch requests. In fact, um, sometimes I'm not sure I have had a few issues and I'm like, is this a Phoenix issue? Is this a brunch issue? Uh, I'm not really sure. So maybe we can talk about that later, but let's get to the Let's get to the meat of the topics here. Uh, Jose, when we had you on last time, we just touched on Ecto a little bit, and we've, re- we've referenced it in this call. Um, but to give the listeners a bit of uh, information, this is your uh, your database connection tool. I'm not sure if you're calling it an ORM. I know you've removed Ecto.model and have Ecto.schema, so it, you're separating it quite a bit from what people who are moving from perhaps a Ruby and Rails background over to Elixir and Phoenix would think of in terms of active record or these types of other libraries that model themselves after 
the active record, rather the either the pattern or the library active record. Um, so that's my bad way of describing it. Why do you describe it better? No, no, that, that's, a, that's a very good introduction. Uh, so that's one of the, the big features coming in, in, in Acto 2 is that we want you, so uh, we would say Acto 1 was more of a modeling tool in the sense that you would define the schemas, at the time they were called models, right? So you would define this model and then you would think, oh, that's where I'm going to put my domain logic, right? So you would like define the functions and then you would have callbacks that would probably have a little bit of your domain logic as well. So uh, so we are stepping away uh, from that because uh, we are starting to see uh, a lot of the issues um, we saw happening elsewhere, you know, uh, with coupling, for example, with callbacks and then start, look, I am... Like I, you define a callback because you want to execute something when you're going to create something to the database, but there are like some scenarios where you don't want that callback to run. And then you have things like, oh, we skip the callback or suppress the callback. You start going to this all weird life cycle stuff. And that's not the way we should write code, right? We should not write a code and then try to undo it in some places in, in, in some like ad hoc fashion. We, you know, I would prefer to write code that are small functions that I can call and compose as I call them, right? So I don't want to build one thing and start like putting patches or holes in it. I want to have a bunch of small things and just call with the functionality I need. So mm-hmm. uh, Acto2 drives a lot into this, this direction. We say, you know, we want you to consider Acto to be a tool and not uh what you use to model your you know your domain like your domain is still going to be modeling functions and an acto can be for example consider a tool that allows you to get data from the database and put it into an elixir data structure so that's mm-hmm. so that's why we got rid of models and now we have acto schema and that's that's all it does it just allows you to get data from the database and put into the structure, and it's convenient because you define it once, and then if you need to use it in a lot of places, you just use the schema in a bunch of different places. But in order to show like a little bit more of how you should think about it as a tool, we now, for example, we also made schemas because if you think about the database, right, it's just a data source. It's just something that you know is, you can get data from, and. Um, so we say, well, there are, there are a bunch of other data sources that we have in our application. So for example, and I wrote a blog post, we, we can include a link, I think, called uh, Actos Insert All in Schemaless Queries that talks about a couple of new features in, in Acto2. But one of them is like, for example, if you have an API, that API is a data source to your application, right? You're getting some data and you're feeding it into your application that you want to parse and you want to handle it in, and maybe put into a data structure the same way you would do uh, with the database. So you can also use the, the schema to get, for example, this data from the API and validate it and cast it and handle it in a bunch of different ways. So uh, it's starting to, to look more like you know uh, a collection of tools that and they work really well together, right? But they're not taking over what we think your um, your application should be. So yeah. so um, maybe it can it can be hard to talk uh, to to right. talk about this, but the blog post we can link has uh, uh, a very good example. So uh, if I remember correctly, what we do that. So for example, imagine that we want to do a sign up sign up form, right? And then mm-hmm. you and then the, the 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 product owner he says something like, you know what? 
I think we should have first name and last name. And then you're thinking, no, that's a bad idea because not everyone has a last name. I don't want to model my database like that. But I know that, you know, the, the owner, he's really decided on that. So you're thinking, no, I have this requirement from the UI, but I know how the data wants to look like. And you don't want to pollute your database with UI decisions, right? You don't want the UI to drive your database. So you start to have a mismatch. And then you start thinking think, uh, think about things like this. You want the email to go to an accounts column, but you want the, the name to go to a users, sorry, to an accounts table, but mm-hmm. you want the, the, the name to go to some other table. So you have a mismatch between what you want to present and what goes to the database. And the way we typically solve this, for example, how we would solve this in Acta one or, or in Rails is that you would add like new attributes to your model and then your model start to be like this weird thing, right? That has a bunch of fields for this operation and a bunch of other fields for this other operation start to become like this small Frankenstein, right? So just getting mm-hmm. a bunch of different concerns. And then if you can just break it apart and say, hey, I have a schema for this and then I can handle, I can handle the sign up logic and then just get the data and put it into the database, right? You, you can think more properly about how are those different data sources and how you can handle them more directly. So uh, that's one of the things that uh, it's coming as part of Ecto 2. Yeah. I think Ecto's interesting. It's definitely a different mindset. So I'm very much coming from the active record mindset. And I've been an active record lover pretty much from the start. I know there's a lot of haters. I know there's a lot of people that you know like it and see its downfalls. And I definitely see its downfalls. I've used it for many years. Um, but what one thing it does is it makes the simple things really simple. And uh, some of my frustration as we started to build out, you know, well, uh, in fact, that little toy, uh, I call it a toy, but that production toy, Phoenix app didn't even have, you know, any database necess- necessity. But as we began building the CMS, I'm starting to work with Ecto more. At first, I was, I struggled. That's where I, I'm used to being able to just hop into the console and manipulate data pretty simply um, in an active record style. And with Ecto, there are these different components. And so Ecto breaks out into um, a repo. There's a change set idea. These are just concepts and you know mo- mo- modules ultimately. So you have change sets, repos, and queries. And you've, you've, you talk about composability. You're composing out you know, this way of manipulating data uh, through these three things. And at first it's difficult to know how you kind of, you know, take the pieces of Play-Doh and munch them together to get what you want. Um, but that started to subside and I'm starting to get it, so, so to speak. Can you, can you talk through for the listeners kind of these different components in terms of the repo, the change set, and the query? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a great question. And, and there is the, 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 the fourth one, which we were just talking about, which is the schema, right? right? So mm-hmm. uh, they, they, they are... They are they are all involved together. So the repository is ultimately what represents your data storage. So every time you want to talk about, uh, you want to get something from the database, you want to write to the database, you want to start a transaction, you always go for the repository. And this is very important for us because, so I, I, I like to say that functional programming is about making the complex parts of your code um, explicit. And it's very important for me for all this functionality being the repository because every time I call the repository, I want it to, I want it to be obvious, right? Because 
that's a lot of complexity if you think about what it's doing. It's managing mm-hmm. connections. You need to serialize data, send that stuff to the database, and that's the TCP connection, and then you need to get the data out, right? And then uh, every time I talk to the database, there's a chance that can be uh, the bottleneck or have performance issues in your application. So, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't buy this idea, for example, that uh, all this logic should be hidden behind something like user.save and that, you know, you, you should not care. Of course you should care, right? What is happening right. when you execute that thing? Because, it, you know, putting it into an agent that is in memory and sending it to a database, it's a whole other story, right? And you need to know about that. So uh, that's the idea of the repository. And then we have, and then we have data, which can be Elixir structures. Uh, so it's basically, you know, uh, a, a key value thing where the keys are defined beforehand, so it's a structure, but it can also be mapped. It can be anything. You can uh, interact with the the, 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 the repository in different ways. And so we have those two, right? We have the repository, and then we have uh, the Elixir schema, which is ultimately just data, just struct and, 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 and the active schema, which is just data. And then uh, we have the query, which is basically, now we have all that data in the database, right? And you want to slice that data in different ways and get part of the data. So how do we do that? And then we have Acto Query, which is, um, which is just, it's again, just Elixir data that you, you write the query little by little, right? So you're saying, look from the post table and then you can call function or say, I want to get the posts that uh, were created um, more than a month ago. And then I want to get just the public post so you can compose a little bit. And then you're going to create this whole query thing, this whole structure sent to the database and the database is going to uh, interpret that as SQL, for example, if you're using Postgres. So that's, uh, so that's the, it's the query and you mostly read it, use it to read data from the database to get data out. And then we have the, the change set, which is what we use to, to track changes to the data. So the idea is, so, you know, we have the repository, which is where the data is, and we have the queries to get data out. And we know that we put those, we can get the, the data that comes to the database, we can put in those schemas, in, in those data structures that we we're talking about, right? So we have now the data memory. How can we change it, right? How can we say, hey, I want to, I want to, so if I have a post, I want to update the title. How can we do that? So the way we do that is that we have a change set, and the change set is, as the name says, it just contains all the changes that you want to do, uh, that you want to do when you talk to the database. So you say, look, I want to update the title to this new thing, and then you're going to give the repository the change set, and then it knows how to convert that to the proper SQL and send the comments to the database. So mm-hmm. those are the, the, the four main entities and how they, they, they act with each other. And then you said something very, very, very nice at the beginning, which was, you know, you are used with the, the, the good experience, you know, like, so for example, I just, if you're creating like a CRUD application, mm-hmm. for example, like the simplest application that can be just, you know, hey, I just want to get, it's in the case where the data you are showing the UI is exactly the shape of the data you want to have in the database, right? That case should still continue to be straightforward, right? You don't want to um, to add a lot of complexity to that. And yeah. I think Acto 2, so Acto 1, you are trying to be really like, you know, oh, we have those concepts here and and you should use those concepts concepts to do those things because we are trying to direct developers to to you know to the proper mindset 
But, you know, at at time, people they were trying to do stuff. They were like, ah, this is too hard. It could be simpler. There is no reason uh, why you put this barrier here. And, right. and there was really no reason. We just that we were saying, hey, you know, like, we want you to hit this wall and then let us know what happens, right? It's like, mm-hmm. are you going to be happy that uh, you hit the wall and you went somewhere better or are you going to be upset that the wall is there? So we were able also to take uh, some of those uh, those walls because, you know, some were good, but some we had to take them out. So Act 2 improves also this common case, right? Where, hey, the, the, the UI is mapping to what I have in, in my database. But uh, as I said in the beginning, it also makes it clear, right, that you are mapping, you are coupling those two different things, right? You're coupling the UI to the database. So if that's what you want to do, fine. You're not going to force you to define a bunch of different mappers, but you should have in mind that, you know, as long as we start to steer a little bit away from this, that the UI doesn't really map to a database, we, we, we make it really easy for you to break apart and you should break apart and start thinking about those things separately. Mm. I think we're hit up against our first break. More questions on Ectophoria on the other side. Specifically, I want to talk about um, preloading as well as a little bit more on chain sets and some of the really cool things that I've been waiting for a database library to do, such as taking constraints that you define at the database level and allowing those to trickle all the way up into you know, human-readable error messages without having to duplicate your work. So let's take that break, and we'll talk about those things and more on the other side. Rollbar puts errors in their place, full-stack error tracking for all applications in any language, And I talked to Brian Rude, the CEO and co-founder of Rollbar, deeply about what Rollbar is, what problem it solves, and why you should use it. Take a listen. How do you build software faster? Like, how do you build better software faster? Um, and there are like there are tons and tons of, of aspects to that. Like, and Ruby is like the, can you have a better language? Can you have better frameworks that help you be more expressive and more productive? So the flip side of that is like after you've built something that works, or at least mostly works, how do you like go about getting it from working to like in production and actually working? How do you cover the edge cases? How do you find things you missed? How do you iterate on it quickly? And that's kind of where what we're trying to do comes in. So we're trying to say after you've shipped your software, you're not done. You know you still have, there's still work to do, and we want to help make that process of maintaining and polishing and, and keeping things running smoothly be really, really, really easy. So like developers spend roughly half their time debugging, right? So anything we can do to make that process better is going to have a huge impact. All right, that was Brian Ruse, CEO and co-founder of Rollbar, sharing with you exactly why it fits, why it works for you. Head to rollbar.com slash changelaw. You get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. That's basically 300,000 errors tracked totally for free. Give Rollbar a try today. Again, head over to rollbar.com slash changelaw. All right, we are back with Jose Valim and Chris McCord talking about Ecto and Phoenix. Jose, before the break, I mentioned preloading. You you said Ecto-1 had a lot of, uh, you put hurdles in the way or barriers and some you've removed, some some you've kept. One barrier that I hit quite often, and I've just learned to work through it, and I understand the reason for it, is you won't automatically preload associations on the developer's behalf. Um, this is something that can often lead to you know inefficient queries and plus one queries and such. And so I feel like this was one of the barriers that you wanted to put in so that people knew exactly and had to explicitly load the data uh, that they want you know, for particular use. That being said, it also can be somewhat annoying sometimes. So 
talk to us about preload. Yeah, so uh, about preloading, exactly as you said, uh, we, we don't do lazy loading, right? So you need to specifically say, hey, I want this data, and that's a barrier. We are we are not changing it, right? Uh, because I think it's a very important. So there, there are a bunch of uh, decisions that leads to this, right? So for example, first of all, we don't have like mutability in the sense that you, you can just call something and then we'll load association and cache it. Right, uh, Elixir data structures they are immutable, so we have already one issue implementation-wise. Okay, and then the other issue is exactly what you hinted. A lot of the applications I have worked on, they have uh, n plus one query issues. Right, so uh, you know you 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 because things can be laid load automatically. You basically don't care, and then when you see you are loading a huge chunk of our database uh, dynamically and in a non-performant way at all. So um, there are a couple more decisions uh, related to this as well. So for example, to talking from the other side, so we force you to think about it upfront and, and uh, preload the data upfront. And it has a bunch of good consequences, which are also some of the, the reasons that led us to this. So for example, if you, if you have to load the data upfront, uh, then you are kind of like, look, I'm loading the data in the controller, for example, because that's where uh, uh, we are loading before calling the view, which means that, for example, we say in Phoenix that we would like your views to be pure in the sense they should just do the data transformation. It receives a bunch of data, for example, a collection from the database, and it transforms that data into HTML, and it should not have side effect, right? It should not write to the database, uh, read from the database, and do a bunch of crazy stuff, and that makes your views really, really straightforward because they're just thinking about data transformation in the complexities in the controller. So that's a pattern we also uh, wanted to promote, and that's why uh, we did this decision. And uh, and you said about the barriers, so that's one example that we tried to improve a little bit more, more the barrier in the sense that having better home messages when you don't preload the data, when you try to use it, or if you preload multiple times. So I think in early active versions, if you had like posts and then you call preload comments, and then you call preload comments, Again, we would preload it twice. So now we are a little bit smart to say, hey, this thing is already preloaded. Just mm-hmm. ju- let's just uh, use that. So making uh, the functionality more convenient altogether. And one of the nice things we also did in this release is that, so if you preload all the data up front, uh, you're going to say, hey, I have this post and I want to preload comments. I want to preload likes. I want to pre- preload this, preload that. So uh, when you specify all the things you want to preload, now we actually preload them in parallel. Because we know all the data mm. we want, then we have the post. So we just say, hey, I'm going to actually then do four queries to the database, process this, that data, and then put into the post. So uh, because we have like this idea of um, having the whole data up front, it, yeah. uh, it helps uh, a lot with that. And then there are things going a little bit more into the Phoenix direction. There are things that we have been discussing for a while that we could add to Phoenix, which is... Uh, if you tell the view, so if you tell the view what is the data that the view needs instead of like just going crazy and doing queries anywhere in the view, we can actually we can do a lot of exciting stuff like we can automatically cache views because we know the data depends and then if we can track when the data is uh, changes, we know that the view needs to be you know the view and the template needs to be regenerated. So it goes over this idea right of having like the 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 
my data and all of its dependencies in one place and not scat- scattered through the view. So we can do like things like automatic caching, or for example, we could automatically send updates, right? So if you say, hey, I have this data, you have your controller that says, I have this data, and uh, when this data changes, I want to try to compute this view and send to our clients using channels. We'll be able to do that because, again, all of the data dependencies, the preloads, and so on, they are in one place and not scattered throughout the views. And I think the preloads play an important part of this whole thing. Let's take a concrete example here. Um, so we're building a, you know, a CMS for podcasts and episodes and whatnot. So we have a podcast episode. And so if you think of an episode page, uh, we're pulling in lots of different data. And this is one of the points where, first of all, it is definitely a nice barrier in terms of as I'm writing the code, I think to myself, wow, this is pulling in lots of different data from different places. So, um, when I'm, when I'm preloading all the things I need for an episode, I preload the podcast that it belongs to, uh, the hosts, uh, the guests, the sponsors, the different channels, which are like topics and and the links. And so it's like preloading tons of different related objects or, uh, or records. Are you saying that in Ecto2, those queries will be uh, dispatched and then brought back together so they run parallel? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes those things are nested. So you can think of it as a tree where the post is the root. And then sometimes you want to get the guests and then the guest is doing more preloads, that is doing more preloads. So that's like one branch of the tree. And then yeah. you want to bring something else, right? Like the likes for that episode. And that's another association. So you can think there, there is a tree. And what we preload in, in parallel are exactly those branches. That's very cool. One, the, the one thing I love the most about open source is when my code doesn't have to change at all. Um, and I upgrade and it just gets faster and better. I just, I feel like, and, and then you do that times to the nth degree of everybody who's using that. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. I, I love the impact that you can have um, when you have lots of people sharing the same the same code base. So very cool. One last thing, uh, we, we mentioned change sets, and I think change sets are really the gem of Ecto. I think it's a great idea, and I think it's well-realized, this idea that oftentimes you're taking input from different places, and where do you put um, the information on who can do what and in the traditional active record style model, it all belongs to the model. And so you have these, you know, callbacks or if statements or conditional virtual attributes and all these things. And with a change set, you just have a new, you just have another change set. So you just have this. Perhaps you have your admin change set and your regular user change set. And that defines what they can and cannot change about that particular schema, which is very cool. Um, also, the constraints. So... Uh, talk to us about change sets and how you can take different constraints, whether they're foreign keys or um, uniqueness validations from your underlying database and use those with Ecto. So this example you gave with change sets, it goes really well to what I said at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So for example, if we have like, if we take uh, active record, you define the whole validations there in one point and maybe they are conditional. And then sometimes you don't want to execute the validations. And as you said, like it's end up with a bunch of conditionals, right? Because you add the thing and then you need to know how to undo those things. And with change sets, because it's just a bunch of functions, right? Like I can have the admin change set, I can have the other change set. And uh, if they both share a common ground, that is going to be a third function that the two change sets they're going to call. And there, and, and there is nothing global, right? Everything is constrained in the change set. And you can introspect the change set and see what is changing, 
what validations ran, and you can see everything, right? It's it's very like it's very kind of touchable, right? Like you can go and introspect and know what's happening. And one of the things that we have there is exactly the idea of constraints. So we have two things in change sets. We have validations and constraints. So validation are things that you can run on the data without needing the database, right? So uh, I can you know validate the length of our string. I can see if it's if if it's required, if it's effectively there or not. If the user sent a new value, so we you know all those things we can validate without the database. But there are other things like does this association exist if you are inserting a a a foreign key or is this email unique? You cannot actually answer this question without asking the database. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if you don't ask the database, if you implement it the application level, you are going to have duplicated data in your database. Right. Um, So uh, to solve this problem, for example, unique, I want this email to be unique. You actually need to go over the database. So the idea of constraints in change sets is is exactly to leverage the constraints that we have in the database. So when we create a change set, we say, look, I want, uh, if by any chance the the database says that this email is, uh, this email is duplicated because of constraint, I want it to convert it to a nice user error message. So the constraints of the chain set is a way for us to tell the chain set, like, hey, you know, we're, we eventually you're going to execute that in the database. And if the database says that this is wrong, that's how we are going to, to tell the user of exactly what happened and with this exact message. So mm-hmm. it maps those two things, right? It ha- maps your application and it maps your data or database. So in your database, you can add all of the constraints that you want, and then we can still show them nicely to the user. Yeah, very cool. Okay, Jose, uh, give you one last chance on Ecto two, new stuff. Got a, just a couple minutes. Give us a rundown of other cool stuff, and then we'll switch gears and talk about Phoenix. All right. So uh, we were talking about performance, like parallel preloads, um, and that's one particular case. But overall, uh, performance is is better because uh, of we are now relying on something called DB connection that was made to represent the database connection. So there was a bunch of optimizations of how connection pooling and all this kind of stuff works. So I, I don't remember exactly the numbers, but uh, people are seeing like from 50% to 80% faster, you know, in general, just queries and encoding, decoding, and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. That's one nice thing. I was telling, I said uh, in the beginning a little bit about the barriers, right? Like, oh, you know, like uh, we put some barriers because we wanted uh, to force people to do some things. One of the barriers we put in Act 1 was that every time we wanted to insert some data, we were forcing you to use things like uh, change sets to the database. But for insert, we actually do not need to track a lot of stuff. So if you want to just insert data into the database without creating a change set, you are supposed to do that. So that's also something we, we, we brought to Acto 2 and we really built on the idea. So what you can do today with Acto 2 is that you can do repo insert and you can define your whole tree of data. You can say, look, going back to, to the show, right, example. So look, this is this episode that is going to have these guests, that is going to have this other information, and I want to have those comments. So you can just really build like an Elixir, a very deep Elixir structure with all the data and then when you call repo insert, we are going to traverse the whole tree, you know, the whole data and insert it to the database. And what is really nice about this is that now, like, you, you need something, for example, like uh, a factory system for your data, right? Because 
you know, like builds associations that does this and does that. Because it's very easy for us to just say, hey, this is the whole tree that I need for my test. And then the tree is really obvious. You just insert it and Actors is going to take care of all that for you. Um, so that was one very nice addition. And uh, I have a blog, a blog post ready for this and it's going to come out soon. So people can check it out a little bit with more details. And the last feature, and I think we actually mentioned this in the last episode, was the idea of concurrent tests. Uh, even if the tests rely on the database. So Elixir always had this feature where you can go to a test case, set async true, and then all cases that have async true, they run concurrently. Right? Mm-hmm. I like to say that it's 2016. Everything you do should be using uh, all of your cores, right? all of the cores right. in your machine. And if you're not doing that, you're like literally just wasting time. Right, because it's a very it's a very easy math to do. Like assuming you can never parallelize 100%, but assuming you can parallelize like 80% of your tests, uh, it, and you have four cores, there's like 80% of your tests that could that their time could be defined kind of per four, right? And you you just gain a huge amount of time. So uh, so we got this idea and we extended with it with Vecto two. So uh, you can now. Uh, run tests concurrently, even if they're talking to the database. And the way we do this um, is that every every time you run a test, this test gets a connection to the database, its own connection to the database that is inside the transaction. And then you can have a bunch of tests running, and all of them is going to uh, be talked to the database with their own specific connection. And because it's all inside the transaction, whatever a test does, write or reads, is not going to affect the other test. So it's a really cool feature, and uh, we have uh, a lot of people using it already uh, with great success. And we have we have recently also integrated this with uh, acceptance testing tools. So we have two in the Elixir community, like Hound, and uh, the other one is Wallaby, or something like that. And they, they, you can kind of drive the testing as if you were a browser, right? Like using Phantom JS or Selenium. And those tools now they also work with the, these. Uh, concurrent tests, so it's really great, right? You can have like concurrent acceptance tests, and you don't need to do much really. It's like one line of code that you add to our test helper, and then one line of code you add to the setup, and it works, right? So everything is faster, including your tests. So that's it. I need love to that. love that. Yeah, very good. <laughs> <clears throat> I guess one more question, Jose. If you could just get a little bit more excited about this stuff, we'd all really appreciate it. <laughs> I, i'm just messing with you <laughs> well we have a lot to talk about with phoenix chris you're still there right i am still here all right chris is still here awesome we're gonna take a quick break and phoenix 1.2 i guess we should probably even catch up with what's happened in phoenix because we were pre 1.0 in our previous call so we'll catch up on phoenix and talk about phoenix presence which looks to be a quite an innovative thing coming to phoenix 1.2 on the other side of the break our friends at CodeShip are sponsors of this show, and I talked to Ethan Jones about the high performance and security of their new Docker platform. Take a listen. So we built CodeShip with Docker with security very much in mind. So at the start of every build, we spin up a fresh EC2 instance. At the end of that build, we spin that instance down. An instance is never reused even between your own builds, much less between builds uh, of any other customers. We also don't do things like cache your dependencies or cache your images locally on our infrastructure. So rather, we support remote caching for those things on your own repos. And all of that is basically to get to the point where your 
code is never living outside of the CI/CD process. None of your application is ever stored on our servers and nothing you push through CodeShip is ever going to be saved, persisted, reused, artifacted anywhere once that build completes other than the explicit commands you run in the middle to do that. The side effect of that architecture is that because these things happen on these EC2 instances in the middle, that gives a lot of flexibility for performance because you can scale up that EC2 instance or scale it down based on the trade-offs you're looking for. So if you want a lot more resources or if your application has a ton of read-write ops or a ton of memory usage, we can sort of up that EC2 instance for your builds. So it makes it really flexible in this sliding scale performance way, but the conversation was really more around security and around keeping everything as protected as we possibly could. How nice is it to get uh, performance as a side effect of security? Yeah. That's awesome. All right, that was Ethan Jones of CodeShip talking about performance and security with our new Docker platform. Head to CodeShip.com slash ChangeLaw to learn more. Tell them we sent you. Use the coupon code, the ChangeLaw Podcast 2016. Once again, the ChangeLaw Podcast 2016. That'll give you a 20% discount on any plan you choose for three months. Head to CodeShip.com slash ChangeLog. And now back to the show. All right, we are back with Jose and Chris. Chris, I guess it's your turn as we shift gears and talk about Phoenix. We had you on in March of 2015, and I think we were pre 1.0 at that point. So we definitely want to focus on the presence feature that's coming in Phoenix 1.2. But uh, could you briefly give us a brief history, recent history of Phoenix for uh, our listeners? Sure. Uh, I can't believe it was over a year ago that I was on. Um, Yeah, now I'm trying to think back. So we we reached 1.0 in July so not too far after I was on, mm-hmm. and I think as far as like new features since I was first on into 1.0, I think it was just about stabilizing things. Um, so we'll go from brief history from 1.0 to where we are now, mm-hmm. uh, and that's where you mentioned Phoenix presence. Uh, so we and we have before that we had some performance optimizations. Uh, so. The whole idea with 1.0 was to get a uh, our API stable and. We knew that we had we had some benchmarks as far as HTTP goes and things were looking quite good. Um, but after we re- released 1.0, we decided to see how our channel layer was uh, doing performance-wise. And our channels are is, is the real-time layer in Phoenix. It wraps WebSockets, but you can also use long pulling or other transports, uh, but your server code remains the same. Uh, so when we went to benchmark this, we were only able to get like 30,000 connections, so 30,000 simultaneous users. Uh, which was much lower than we were hoping. Um, and it was a cool story because, you know, initially it was like, wow, that's horrible. But with like a few lines of code change, I think it was Jose had the first optimization. It was like he actually removed a little bit of code, changed a few lines, and uh, it doubled the performance. So we got 60,000 connections. Uh, so that was cool. And then it was just we repeated that a few times where, we would change a few lines, end up with a diff that was actually less code, and we would double or triple performance. And uh, in fact, our last optimization, we just changed one line of code, and it gave us like a, a 10x increase in throughput. Wow. Um, so, long story short, we, you know, we we've always preached that you know we have this great tooling uh, for Erlang and Elixir, and that you know it's really easy to get a, a live running look at the system. Um, so we were actually able to you know really put that to the test and. We had like uh, we provisioned like 50 servers that would act as WebSocket clients, all sending connections to one server because we needed to try to open like two million connections. 
And we were actually able to get a, a GUI uh, into our server of like a, ri- a live running list of like what our processes were doing, what our uh, in-memory storages were looking like. And that's how we we optimized. And it was like too easy. So we ended up changing. Uh, we ended up with a diff that was less code to go from something that supported 30,000 connections to our channel layer that supported ultimately uh, 2 million connections per server. Uh, so, so that was the... M- really exciting part from after 1.0 where we were able to optimize and get like, uh, you know, WhatsApp scale of 2 million connections on a single server. Which WhatsApp was uh, the the case study that you cited in our last our call last year is what got you excited about Erlang and Elixir was the fact that they built WhatsApp with like, was it like 30 engineers or less up to ridiculous scale? Yeah, Isn't up right? to like, uh, I think, yeah, that's WhatsApp that, that, that anecdote of like 2 million users per server was like what got me into uh, Erlang and Elixir in the first place. So it had Having to feel pretty Ruby. good when you when you got your channel layer to similar yeah, success. Yeah, it was like probably the most fulfilling process um, of this whole uh, Phoenix open source thing because the the platform, like the hype lived up to reality. And I wasn't, even, I wasn't thinking we could actually get WhatsApp-like scale because I had, uh, when I read about what about WhatsApp? Like they were using uh, FreeBSD, and they had like they forked Erlang and made some optimizations, and they they were like they had fine-tuned FreeBSD. So I was thinking that it was going to be very difficult to try to replicate that kind of scale. And also, channels were doing like we're doing more work because we have to you know every abstraction has a cost. So we're having you not have to worry about the transport level. We're able to send specific errors to the client. So we're doing extra work. Um, so it was really fulfilling to actually see that, you know, with minor changes and our initial best effort approach with just a few tweaks was able to go to something that was able to get millions of connections. Um, so that was, yeah, incredibly fulfilling to come kind of come full circle. And also mm-hmm. it's, it's a great, it's a great brag slide now of like showing that 2 million connection chart. Uh, <laughs> so, so it's good marketing for us. Um, so yeah, yeah so that was, we the, included that blog post in changelog weekly when you, when you, uh, posted it and I think that was one of our top clicks if not our top click of of the newsletter that week so I think uh I think the bragging paid off in terms of people were interested in in that those results awesome and then like you said earlier about loving open source about your code getting faster so now yeah. if you you're using channels at Phoenix 1.0 you can upgrade to Phoenix uh 1.1 or 1.2 now and you'll you'll have something that's like you know orders of magnitude faster with, with changing nothing awesome um so yeah that was the that was the effort after directly after 1.0 was performance optimizations around channels. And then uh, with 1.2, which is release candidate, uh, which is due out very soon, is it was really all about Phoenix Presence. And uh, for that, Phoenix Presence started out as like a, a simple, uh, we wanted to solve a simple problem. What we thought was simple was we, you have this real time layer and people were asking, how do I get the a list of currently connected users? So like the, the simplest use case would be show like a sidebar in chat of like who's online or who's in this chat room. And we thought this was going to be pretty simple to solve. Um, and people weren't solving it well when, when they deployed it to multiple servers. And this ended up being like several months of work where I thought it would be uh, a simple problem. It ended up being actually pretty nuanced. Um, so yeah, I guess I can speak to uh, Phoenix presence and, yeah. and kind of all the, all the things we had to solve there. So the issue with, with presence is you can have, well, one, you can be online from multiple places. So if I open a browser or open the app on my uh, browser and then I 
signing them for my phone, I have to be able to distinguish those two things because I want to show Chris just signed online like the very first time I log into the app. But if I come in for my phone, I don't want to alert everyone that I'm here because like I'm already there. But I might want to show an icon that I'm now online for mobile. So you have to you have to treat presences as unique, uh, even given the same user. And then the distributed problem is is the hardest issue that almost no one solves. And that's if you have this distributed state on the cluster, most people just shove that into like Redis or a database. And that works if you just assume that computers are reliable and the network's reliable. And I think most people just, at this point, uh, they just assume that nothing bad's ever gonna happen. It's usually like the best case. And the problem is if if you have a net split or you have a server uh, drop and go down, you're gonna have orphan data in Redis or your data store. So I might show user that's online now forever because the server that was responsible for removing them from Redis is now dead. It, it got, you know, it caught on fire or someone tripped over the power cord. Um, so you end up with like convoluted uh, solutions that uh, Jose and I, when we were originally planning this, we were talking through how you would implement this. And you initially we were thinking maybe we would have an adapter that could be like Postgres or Redis. We were So we were thinking in the database sense mm-hmm. and then you end up with just all these convoluted things of like now if a node goes down, you can have every other node periodically try to detect that one node went down and then clean up those orphan records. But if you have like a hundred servers on a cluster, now you have like a hundred servers like competing to do cleanup for one other server. And like, it just becomes this mess and it's not going to scale. And not to mention you have a single point of failure once you deploy Redis and you're going to have to serialize, deserialize your data in and out. So it's got some severe uh, side effects. So we wanted to tackle this in a way that didn't require the single source of truth, this single bottleneck. And that's where Phoenix Presence adds a CRDT, which is a conflict-free replicated data type. And that gives us uh, the ability to have like an eventually consistent, um, eventually consistent list of presences that is just going to recover from net splits or servers going down or new servers coming up. So if a new server joins a cluster, it's just going to request from the minimum amount of nodes uh, all of the presence information, and it's going to self-heal. So you can deploy this now with no single point of failure, and it's going to recover automatically under pretty much any scenario, whether there's like a network issue or whether you have a server just drop off uh, forever. Mm-hmm. So we, we've solved all of those hard edge cases that no one really gets right. And at the end of the day, on the server side, it's like a couple lines of code on the server and a few lines of code on the client, and you can get an active list of users. And it's something that you don't have to think about. Yeah, so maybe can you give us the uh, the scope of the presence feature for Phoenix users? You, you said there you have a list of active users. Um, in terms of all that it will provide for the Phoenix user to develop their, their channel-based application, uh, what all is going to be there, quote-unquote, for free? Uh, well, free for us, but hard work for y'all with Phoenix 1.2? The API is pretty simple. There's a there's a mixed Phoenix Gen presence generator that just generates you a presence module that you can put in your supervision tree. And uh, what that's going to give you is you can say presence track, so like track my user, and you can give it some like user ID and metadata. So it's like a couple lines on the server to say, hey, track my process, and also send a list of presences down to the client. And then the JavaScript client includes a new presence object that handles um, syncing the state with the server because you you want to be able to resolve conflicts not only on the server, on the cluster, but also on the client. So if the client disconnects, 
you might have users that have come and left and the client needs to be able to sync that state when they reconnect. Uh, so we provide just a, a couple functions on the client. There's a presence sync state and sync diff. So as information is replicated on the cluster, instead of getting like 500 users come and go like really quickly, instead of getting 500 messages on the client, you'll get a single uh, presence diff event and you'll call presence sync diff with a couple optional callbacks to be able to detect. Um, given that single event, uh, if a user joined from the first time or if they joined from an additional device, you'll be able to actually detect those cases. So you can maybe show a count of the number of devices I'm on or uh, show the mobile icon or if I'm logging off from every device, I can actually finally show, you know, Chris left. Uh, so we give you all those primitives and it's just a few lines of code that you have to write. Um, and that's pretty much all presences from the uh, Phoenix uh, 1.2 sense. It's just a um, few lines of code on the server and the client to develop this uh, list of active users uh, on a given topic, whether that's yeah. per chat room or maybe a, a global active list of all users signed into the application. It's interesting that you mentioned the CRDT. We recently had Juan, the Juan Bennett of IPFS, the interplanetary file system, on the show. And near the end, we asked him what his open source was on his open source radar, and um, he had mentioned CRDTs as a very interesting uh, piece of computer science that um, has a lot of use cases, and he thinks that it needs more exposure because uh, people aren't using this, you know, this data structure. And at the time, I was about to interject and say, I think it was Phoenix Presence using CRDTs, but I wasn't sure, and I also didn't want to interrupt him. Can you talk about how you came to, to discover CRDT as a thing and, um, and use it for this feature? So, yeah, I think you're right. It hasn't, they haven't really been put to their full potential. And that's one of the things that excites me the most is, like, I like to say that uh, Phoenix is putting uh, cutting-edge CS research into practice. So it's not only, you know, we're not just trying to say, like, ooh, we can be uh, computer science-y, right? It's exciting. It, it's exciting to me because we're applying this cutting-edge research, but we're actually putting into something that you can solve day-to-day. -day. Like, you know, like the uh, React uh, database is like, they use CRDTs, but there's not, like, unless you have the need for this uh, distributed database, like, no one day-to-day -day is leveraging CRDTs, at least from, that I'm aware of. Um, so I'm, I'm excited that we're able to solve this, like, simple use case using um, this really great research. Mm -hmm. um, but the nice thing about CRDTs is they give us, I mean, it stands for conflict-free replicated data type. So they give us eventual consistency. So we don't have to do like remote synchronization where we have like a uh, a uh, consensus protocol where we have to like lock the cluster and figure out, you know, who has what. So it gives us a way to be, um, if we can fit within the constraints of the CRDT we can have uh, much better performance and much better uh, fault tolerance because we can just replicate data. Uh, data can arrive uh, out of order. It can arrive multiple times. And all of that is going to uh, eventually commute to the same uh, result. Like it's like conflicts are mathematically impossible. If you mm -hmm. fit your problem, if you fit your problem into this confined CRDT problem space. Right. Uh, so it has some really nice qualities in a distributed system because you can't really rely on um, the network always being reliable, and you also, once you get to a lot of nodes, you don't want to have to lock the cluster to get some kind of consensus. You want that to be automatically uh, resolved for you. Mm -hmm. uh, so we knew that the this there's a particular there's a different kinds of CRDTs, but we knew that 
a particular kind of CRDT uh, called an ORSWAT, Observe, Remove, Set Without Tombstones, had all of the qualities that we wanted for presence. Uh, so from kind of that thinking, uh, I was talking with Alexander Sanj, who has worked on some Elixir CRDT libraries and, and gave a great talk last year at ElixirConf about CRDTs. And uh, he kind of you know, confirmed our thoughts about, yeah, this presence would be um, you know, a perfect uh, fit for CRDTs. So we kind of uh, knew it was going to be an optimal solution if we could we could figure it out. Yeah, presence makes a lot of sense when you for you know eventual consist- consistency because it doesn't make it's not a requirement that everything always be completely consistent uh, when you're worried about who's who who is and who is not present. As long as it eventually gets there, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Yep, exactly. So uh, besides the, the talk that Chris said that we had in Elixir Conf last year, mm-hmm. uh, Chris' talk at Elixir Conference now in Europe in Berlin was also really good. And if, if someone is finding it hard to follow only, you know, uh, for, for um, listening, I recommend watching the talk. The video should be out soon. And then uh, so and Chris has some examples there. For example, he had like two nodes connected to each other, and then some users are in some node, and then some users are in another node, and then he simulates a disconnection between the nodes, and you can see that everyone that is in one node uh, disappears from the other node, right? From 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 the the screen dis- disappears live from from the browser uh, for each connected client, and then as soon as we, he reconnects, everything's all. All of the clients, they they come back, right? All, everyone that was connected to those particular servers, because now the servers are back up. They can exchange this CRDT again between them, and then you know, oh, now I know everyone who is back up again. So that was a very good example, and there was also Chris also showed there a very good example of uh, it's actually not a lot of lines of code. As he said, you just generate the presence stuff. You go, you telling the server why do you want to track, and then on the JavaScript side side, you just say, hey. Every time you receive a new state, that's how I want to change my my you know my views, my JavaScript in the browser. And every time I receive a diff, that's how I want to change it. And done, right? Mm. It's uh, really really small to get everything working with all those properties, right? Like no central point of failure. Um, in everything is distributed, and if nodes go down and then they come back up, you are going to be able to merge, and everything just works. It's really it's really cool. I think I think. If if everything <laughs> if everything works well, we are going to end up with the same problem as, as things HTML. Like we don't get bug reports, and then we don't know if it, that's because people are not using or <laughs> because it just works. But I think it just works again because uh, we, we are hearing stories of people using it in production already for a while, nice. and it's like just fine. So that's yeah. that's always nice to hear. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, I keep telling like. I keep thinking that we'll have bugs, but uh, because CRDTs are they're tricky to implement. Like they have to be correct. Like there's no like almost correct as far as CRDTs go. Mm. Um, but this like so I released Phoenix One Two RC and and uh, people are using it and reporting that it works, but like I, I don't believe them because this thing like you know, this took me months of work and like, you know, reading research papers and, you know, trying, you know, having crushing self-doubt and then overcoming that and like figuring out how to parse uh, these academic papers. And now that it's released or almost released, mm-hmm. I don't actually believe that people are using it because I haven't had any like show-stopping bugs. But uh, so that's, that's good. But also it's like, you know, it's, it's uh, unless someone comes and, and tries to mathematically 
verify our implementation. It's uh, we'll see how it goes. But yeah, it's been uh, it's been a really exciting process, and uh, I guess it's kind of driven where we're going to go with Phoenix uh, Beyond One Two, which mm-hmm. I guess we can talk about. Um, but maybe if you want to still stay within the realm of presence first, or we can talk about maybe where we want to go with with what we've built. Because uh, it turns out that presence is actually kind of this gold mine of untapped potential that we accidentally created. Yeah, I mean, that was what I was going to actually ask next. And we're, we're coming up against a hard stop. So um, let's talk about the future a little bit. I was going to say, is Phoenix Presence a one-off feature that y'all put a lot of work into, but it kind of stands on its own? Or to me, it kind of seems like there's building blocks that have been laid for other things. And so maybe you could speak to that in, in the future. Yeah, so it, I'll start with when I my very first Phoenix talk in, I think it was 2014, at the very first ElixirConf. Um, you know, I had a good idea what I, where I wanted Phoenix to go, and I I think I pitched it as a distributed web services framework, is like was on like the first or second slide, and I talked about you know leveraging Elixir and this distributed runtime, and you know at the time we were just trying to tackle the standard web use case, but I talked about like long long term I wanted to have like a distributed service discovery layer. And uh, at the time, I really had no idea what I was talking about other than I knew that we like we had the technology and I knew that we could solve it with with Elixir being able to just, you know, have a deploy a uh, service somewhere on the cluster that can perform some work for you and then be able to tell it, hey, do this thing and just have it work magically. And uh, I figured it was going to be like really far off. And even if you would ask me like uh, at the, around one last year, I would have told you like, yeah, it's still I'm interested in it, but it's really far off. Um, but it turns out like we've accidentally solved it with presence and uh, kind of like pretty far into the solving this this simple use case of showing lists of users online, we kind of realized that uh, we made this really what we really made is a distributed process group that has some like really nice qualities. It's eventually consistent, which is nice, and it also allows you to attach metadata about each uh, each process joining or leaving a group and mm-hmm. it gives you a callback to be invoked when a process joins or leaves. Uh, so we realized instead of replicating users that are online, uh, it's exactly the same thing if we replicated uh, what services were online. Like they're both processes. So we could have instead of Chris's online, we could say, hey, this web crawler processes online that says it can do web crawling. And instead of listing the users that are in this chat room one, two, three, I could say, give me uh, every process on the cluster that says it can do web crawling. And like the code like it's the exact same code that would that would apply to both cases. Um, so we realized that we have this service discovery layer uh, by accident, and we've solved all the hard things that we would have had to solve to do service discovery, and it has all of the qualities that we want as far as recovering from uh, failure, uh, net splits, or new nodes coming online, and just having services automatically uh, be discovered. Uh, so we want to... Where we want to go next is we want to maybe make an API specifically around services where we can build on top of presence to be able to do like efficient service lookup and, and routing to be able to say like do, be able to do process placement where I, I want to uh, call a web crawler for example like something expensive I want to have multiple of those deployed across the cluster uh, one for failover and two so I can distribute that work so I want to, I would like the client to be able to say um, you know, automatically load balance based on maybe the current work factor of the uh, each web crawler. So the web crawler can update their uh, current number of jobs that they're processing, and that'd be in the metadata of the presence. 
And then we could also other, do other efficient routing where we could just automatically shard based on the available web crawlers on the cluster. That way the caller just says, hey, call this uh, web crawler service. Here's informa information and we'll automatically distribute that load for them. Um, so there's some some other neat things we can build on top of presence, but really the the plumbing is there today. And uh, that's what the most exciting part of it is for me is like we we accidentally solved this uh, exceptionally hard problem in our quest to show like, you know, what users are online. And I think it's kind of a testament to Elixir and the platform that, you know, we we use these primitives of the language that we're built in and we built on top of them. And given this distributed runtime and this great environment, we ended up with something far greater uh, really by accident. That's a, an awesome byproduct of uh, trying to solve what is typically a simple problem, but you found this greater piece to it. Since we have a, a hard stop for Jose, we're going to let Jose off the call. Jose, you cool with uh, with bailing out so we can continue with Chris for a few more? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I just uh, I want to add one thing, my my last words. So uh, just to, to give a, 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 an idea. Uh, what we're we're thinking here. So, like, imagine you're building an application, and then this application is growing, and then you're like, ah, oh, geez, I I want to, I'm going to get like this part of this application or this feature that we are going to build next. I want to put it elsewhere. I'm going to make it another application, right? And then what you do is that you start to developing that separately, and then those applications talk to each other. So you need to go implement a web API for that other application that the other application is going to call, and then you need to serialize your stuff to JSON, right? And then uh, if you have like, and then if one server cannot handle that at all, you need to put a HA proxy or something like that on top of that other servers, other services, right? Uh, and then on the other, and then your original application, you need to go write the code that's going to do the JSON deserialization. And then you need to have an HTTP client that's going to talk to the thing, right? So you're writing all this code. Uh, and all those things, and uh, it it ends up being a lot of things. And what you end up is like it's basically you have like a distributed system where you're talking to other machines, but the way the distributed system communicate with each other is just very complicated, right? Because you're using HTTP that's not efficient, and then you're using JSON that's not an ideal serialization format as well, right? So you but you create all those things, right? You need to have all those infrastructure pieces. And here, because we have the Erlang, we have the Erlang virtual machine that runs in distributed mode. Nodes can talk to each other. It already knows how to serialize data between uh, distributed entities, right? So what we're saying is that, hey, you are writing your code, and then uh, it can even be in the same project. Uh, so for example, you you have like in the same, in your same application, you have like, hey, I have like, in this project, I want this to run in one node and this to run in the other node. So when you test things locally, you don't need to start a bunch of different entities, right? It's just everything you can talk direct, directly there. And then when you want, want to run into production, you just say, hey, now you run in those different machines in different cluster, and then you don't need to do any of the other stuff, right? You don't need to have a proxy to do the load balancing for you because the the you know uh, the Phoenix service system is going to take care of that, right? So you just say, hey, I want to run those things there, and done, problem solved, right? You don't need to uh, be writing HTTP clients, you don't need to think about uh, how you're going to serialize and serialize the data because it's all taken care of. And that's kind of the uh, the idea we're going at. So if you can make a parallel, like when we designed the presence system and then you can have a bunch of machines in your cluster just, just talking to each other and then you don't need Redis, you don't need other dependencies, we are thinking the same right here. But, you know, look, now I have I know those different services, right, running different machines, and they can talk to each other. And you don't need HTTP client. 
You don't need a proxy. You don't need something that is going to do the service registration and manage when those nodes are up. So, you know, everything is there. We can do it because of the of the platform. Wow. Good stuff, Jose. Cool. So uh, I have to go, unfortunately. But um, Chris, go on. And thanks again <laughs> for having me. And uh, we'll chat later. Yeah. Yep. Have a good one. Thanks, Jose. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jose. Thanks for your time. We'll talk soon. Bye. All right. Now we're back Alrighty. to Chris. So that's that's unusual. We've never had a caller drop off during a call here before. So that's that's, uh, that's what you do when you have two and one has limited time. Yeah, now that works. Gone, we can badmouth him. <laughs> <laughs> now he had some. Uh, yeah, he made some good good comments about kind of where where we see service discovery going. Like it, yeah, it, big it really ideas. simplifies uh, everything and, and gives you um, like you know microservices are you know the the hot movement, but it really gives you the it really gives you the best of both worlds where you can develop these things just in Elixir like you normally would. And then you deploy them out there as quote unquote microservices, but you don't have all of this uh, munging to do of like, okay, and now let's talk to uh, this API team because these things aren't discoverable. They're just web endpoints that have their own load balancers. Like all these layers disappear. And that's uh, something that is really exciting to me if we can, we can leverage that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've always loved the simplicity of HTTP from a programmer's perspective in terms of a an interface for communications. Um, but it always seemed like it was suboptimal when it comes to microservices and and send it, so I mean, everything over JSON and HTTP. There's just a lot of stack there that you don't necessarily need. Yeah, especially if you already have a distributed environment. And right. the other part of this too is because we have a distributed environment it's not just about making like a remote procedure call. I mean, that's part of it, but part of it too is if I want to, let's say I'm, I'm running a game and I have some game state and game logic and I want to be able to spawn these things somewhere on the cluster. So imagine a service um, not only can do web crawling, but maybe you have one that's doing uh, game state. So I want to have a process spun up somewhere on the cluster for me that manages a, a couple players game state of a game that they're playing. Like that's, that's a long lived process. It's not just a remote procedure call. And what that does is I'm going to say, hey, somewhere somewhere on the cluster, someone spawn me a game server. And then I get a process back of that game server, and I can communicate directly with that process now, just like any other Elixir code. So it's not only like a service remote RPC call, it's being able to do process placement on like, hey, someone spawned me one of these things, and then I'm going to treat it just like any other Elixir code, just like any other process. I can communicate with it directly. I can ask it later for its state. I can change its state. So it really gives you the best of the platform. Very cool. Chris, well, if you have a little bit of time and are open to it, I do have some a list of random support questions that Jared has, which we're going to maybe even ask off air. But we have some time. I think people will be interested in hearing your take on a few things Yeah, with let regard me, to Phoenix. Let me have them. So, yeah. So the first two are kind of combined in terms of taking Phoenix into production. Um, kind of part A is, do you suggest running it behind a proxy or not? And related... Um, does Phoenix or Cowboy uh, or the stack itself have the HTTP2 support? Is there anything specific that you'd have to do to get that running, or, or what's the situation there? Yeah, so for the first part, uh, it really depends. Like, there's there's no absolute need to run Phoenix behind a proxy. Uh, in fact, I've heard, I don't think it's going to be the normal case, but I've heard two different cases of Nginx actually becoming a bottleneck before Phoenix went behind Nginx. Hmm. Um, but I don't think, for the vast majority of people, well-configured well, well configured Nginx, that's not going to happen. Uh, but that's just an interesting anecdote. 
Yeah. Um, but I think as far as like a dockyard, we deploy everything behind Nginx. Um, it's just simpler. Like that's that's our deploy process, and that's how we can load balance multiple uh, web front ends. Uh, so I think Nginx is still what I would how I would deploy my web front ends in uh, Phoenix. Um, but it's not absolutely not a requirement. Um, so really, it's just going to depend on uh, I would say deploy just like you just like you would any other uh, web stack and it's, yeah. and those web those web front ends will happen to be clustered together with your greater elixir cluster but still being load balanced in front of or behind uh, nginx is is a great option um and for the second part http2 uh, we're exploring that uh, cowboy uh, master has http2 support uh, so cowboy 2.0 is going to come out with http2 and there's also another uh, there's a library called Chatterbox, uh, which is an Erlang HTTP2 server. So, um, so we're currently looking at how to get HTTP2 into Plug, which is our uh, our web server abstraction that Phoenix sits on top of. Uh, so it's not there yet, uh, mm-hmm. but as soon as we have kind of need, we need to get into Cowboy 2 and this Chatterbox library and look at how they could both fit into uh, kind of a common API under Plug. So I think definitely once time when Cowboy 2.0 goes stable, we'll shortly thereafter release a plug that will have HTTP2 support, and then Phoenix will just just get HTTP2 on top of that. But uh, so it's coming, but it's not there yet. Okay. Um, talk about deployment a little bit in terms of you know how you get a Phoenix application into the wild. Let's let's ignore for now the platforms as a service, the Heroku build packs and whatnot. I know there's EXRM, which is the Elixir release manager, which seems to be the the way suggested to move forward. Um, I'm wondering if if there's anything on top of that, similar to a Capistrano, where it's kind of manipulating the EXRM in order to do the, for instance, the SCP step of the the application to the server, maybe database migrations, uh, rollbacks, those kind of things. What's the what's the deployment story? Yeah, so the deployment story could, I, I, I guess, I hope it gets better. Like, it's not bad. It's similar to where, like, you were, you know, with Ruby earlier on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have some, we have some tools, but there's still some manual steps. Uh, so just for our reader or for our listeners that aren't familiar, uh, XRM is a way to build uh, releases. So there's two ways to deploy Elixir and Phoenix applications. One is to run the project directly, like you would run it in development. Um, and another one is to build a release, which is a self-contained uh, tarball of like the whole Erlang VM, all of your project code, everything it needs to run. And then you can deploy that and run it as like a self-contained entity. And that's that gives you some nice features like uh, hot code upgrading. Um, so under the Capistrano light case, there's XRM will build you a tarball, but mm-hmm. there's this final step of, okay, now you need to SCP that onto the server and then basically start the release uh, and run it, um, which is, isn't that hard. So some people, that's how they deploy. They just have like yeah. a bash script that just SCPs starts and they're good. Um, but I would like to see uh, some tooling built on top of that. Cause I, I think to give you that like mixed deploy, like that just single task, like deploy right. functionality, I think it would go a long way. Uh, there's a couple tools that I've been meaning to check out. One is called a uh, Relisa, uh, R E L I S A, I believe. And I think it does that for you. I just haven't had time to uh, to look into it. So I, I'll link that in the uh, show notes. Uh, so yeah, I think releases or deploys could definitely get better. It's not like it's this insurmountable thing today, but I think that if we want to give people that Capistrano-like experience because 
that's just removing an, yet another barrier to entry to people, you know, getting yep. this out in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, I was walking through the steps and it looks very much like, okay, this looks like maybe a 10 line bash script, which, you know, does those for me. But then I started thinking of, you know, uh, atomic changes and rollbacks and, you know, database migrations, if there are any. And I thought, hmm, somebody should solve this problem. I wonder if anybody has yet. So if you're out there and you want to get involved and, uh, or maybe, maybe Relisa is it and we just don't know yet, but there's an opportunity to help the Phoenix community. Um, yep. And there's also, there's also eDeliver, which is what we use at Dockyard. Um, and really all eDeliver is, is just a bunch of bash scripts that are wrapped. Um, and we've had some stumbling blocks there. Uh, we've got it to work, but I think it could still be, um, it's not just this, uh, run, you know, set up and you're, you're ready to go. So I, mm -hmm. I think that, yeah, if someone wants to be, uh, get some open source, uh, street cred, that'd be a great uh, problem to take, take on. There you go. So last thing I have for you, I, I teed it up way at the beginning of the call talking about, uh, the decision to, um, basically bring in a third party build tool, which the default is brunch, um, which is, you know, really leveraging the, the NPM ecosystem. And I, I think you were on is either Ruby rogues or the Elixir fountain recently saying, you know, you didn't, it didn't seem like you didn't want to touch the JavaScript side, uh, with a 10 foot pole, uh, to put words in your mouth, but just staying out <laughs> of that whole thing. I know that brunch, uh, which seems like a really nice build tool, uh, has, you know, some integration points with Phoenix and there's ways to swap it out. Um, I was on the Phoenix uh, Slack channel the other day and somebody mentioned that they had been replacing it with Webpack. Um, maybe just talk about the build tool situation, the decision you made, and how you go about you know, changing uh, build tools. Or you know, A lot of these people who are building Phoenix backends for JavaScript or Elm frontends, they don't even you know, need any part of this. Um, but specifically, my specific support request is about phoenix.digest and if that's tied specifically to brunch or if that would work with another build tool. But I guess to broaden it, just speak to the build tool situation in general first. Sure. Yeah, so Phoenix Digest, just to answer that, is not tied to brunch. So okay. uh, I'll, I'll touch on that in a second. So yeah, this has been the most miserable part of <laughs> Phoenix. Um, and I think it's it's no fault of brunch. Uh, so backstory is... Uh, People out of the box, like Phoenix has really been about giving you like a great out of the box experience, which right. I think is one of the most important things. And out of the box, um, people just want the ability to compile and bundle their JavaScript and CSS. Like they just, they just want it to work. Like you put your JavaScript in a directory, you put your CSS in a folder and it gets compiled for you when files change. And what we didn't want to do is write our own uh, asset pipeline because I didn't want to spend a year of my life working on that. And right. uh, the other side of this is as much as what we, all the vast majority of issues on the Phoenix issue tracker are uh, node and NPM related or brunch related. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's not a problem of brunch. It's just I think the JavaScript community has a bunch of great tooling, but a bunch of fragile tooling. And and if we even if we implemented our own asset pipeline in Elixir, we would still have a hard node dependency because it's like I, I like to call it that like node and JavaScript is just like an unfortunate reality in web development. Like there's no way to get away from it. If you want to support SAS, uh, ES6, right. CoffeeScript, TypeScript, like pick any tool that you use to 
deliver an experience in the browser, it's going to be, you're going to have a hard node dependency. Like that is what it is. So even if we spent all this time writing an Elixir asset pipeline to concatenate files and call shell scripts, you'd still need to have node installed on the server because we'd still be shelling out to these tools. So unless we wanted to re-implement an ES6 transpiler, SAS, all these tools in Elixir, like it's it's pointless. Uh, so uh, we instead we said, okay, let's look at what the JavaScript ecosystem has. And we, we investigated like all of the dozen popular ones um like uh we i looked into grunt uh gulp uh from gulp i looked into webpack and from webpack uh then i checked out brunch and uh, brunch one because it was the by far the simplest to use it had the smallest scope as far as feature set and it was the fastest and uh like a lot of these tools like gulp and webpack they want to be not only asset builders, but they want to be like task runners, uh, test runners. Uh, mm-hmm. They want to do like they want to run development servers. They want to do like all these things. And if you're familiar with the Node community, like all these things have dependencies, and your dependencies have dependencies, and you end up with something that is like this insane uh, dependency tree um, just to concatenate JavaScript and CSS. Uh, so we like Brunch because it was simple and fast, and it's just jo- uh, JSON configuration. So you don't have to really know. How brunch works we just when you run mix phoenix new you get a project and by default you'll get es6 compilation and css bundling just by putting css and js into a folder um, so that's how we settled on brunch but we knew that it would be a point of contention because there's like you know a million different tools in the, in the javascript uh, community so what we did is we we only include it by default but there's no coupling so if you wanted to use webpack it's like a one-line change in your configuration and it will start uh, the webpack watcher instead of the brunch watcher so we call these things like watchers where they they watch a static directory for changes and then we shell out to them and they do whatever uh, compiling is needed and uh, they'll build files into uh, a priv static directory where which is where our static files live and that's where the that's where the digest task comes in where if you want to digest your assets all we say is your static build tool needs to build to this directory. We don't care if it's Brunch or Webpack or Grunt, and then we'll digest those already uh, bundled files. Uh, so we tried to integrate this in a way that gives you great out-of-the-box experience for the most common use cases, but if you have some other tool, you should just be able to swap it out and, and use what use what you like. Certainly good points on Node uh, being there for you no matter what. It's, it's on the front end. You can't get away from it. Why recreate the wheel? or redundancy, you know, in that case, making something that you don't need. Yep. And it's been a pretty, I mean, it's been, there's been a ton of misery and like, you know, I, I don't like to, well, you don't want to spend a year of your life, like you said, doing that. Right. So there's and better things like to focus to be, on. Yeah. Like I don't like to like put down anyone else's work, but like there has been, there's been so many times that this is just that like NPM install has just broken for people. And like, mm-hmm. uh, you can probably sense some frustration for me like, cause it's, Someone will open an issue about like there's like repeatable builds, like things just break. Uh, things that have been uh, stable on Windows will just suddenly break. So like we've, we've had all these Windows support issues, which is interesting because it's not like what I, I thought that Elixir and Erlang would be tough to run on Windows. But it turns out the, the biggest issue is people trying to run uh, Node on Windows, mm-hmm. which I thought was a solved problem. Um, so I think that, you know, I wish we could, you know, my only hope for the JavaScript community is we can settle on tooling instead of having yeah. so many options and then also maybe end up with kind of a repeatable build process Good that luck. is yeah, that is much more stable than it is now so yeah <laughs> c- 
we'll see how that goes. But hopefully, the question uh, is: Did brunch uh, depend upon left pad? <laughs> um, I mean, I'm trying to think. Yes, actually, it did. Okay. Everything depended on left pad. Everything did. <laughs> Everything. So therefore, Phoenix depended on left pad. To the yeah, because people talk, started talk. reporting issues, and, oh, wow. uh, and it was left pad related, which is funny. Well, Chris, it's uh, it's been fun having you. We we we're near we're near time. I think Jared has a hard stop here in 13 minutes. I'm not sure what your timing is, but um, we could talk for longer. You got we want to give you a chance to sort of give some last words like Jose did as as well. So anything you want to say in closing, we'd love to love to hear it. Sure. Yes. Yeah, so let's see. Maybe just a recap of Phoenix One Two. Yeah, so Phoenix 1-2, it's release candidate today. Uh, We have no working issues, so I think within the next week or two, uh, by the time this airs, it should be out. Um, Presence is the biggest feature. Uh, We're really excited about really enabling enabling distributed applications that you just don't have to think about. And that's where we want to go next, is being able to give you this kind of distributed tooling layer where you can build out, you know, develop a application on your laptop and then run it distributively, uh, but the code's the same. So it's kind of a similar theme of, with channels, we wanted to give you this trivial interface for real-time connections where you didn't have to worry about how is the client connected, you know, what transport are they coming over. Um, we kind of want to apply that same idea to um, distribution where you can develop on your laptop and then you can deploy this and you don't want to have to care is this service available locally or is it available on some computer somewhere or do I happen to have 10 of these things deployed on 10 computers because I want fault tolerance and scalability. So we kind of want to give you that experience and have take care of all those details for you. Uh, So that's what's coming next and uh, check Phoenix 1-2 out when this airs. Adam, before we close, I'd like to give a quick shout out to Dockyard for uh, employing Chris and allowing Chris to work on open source. I think is it full-time you're on Phoenix or at least part-time? Yeah. So yeah, thank you for that, by the way. Um, yeah, I've, my primary role is to work on Phoenix. So it's about three quarters of my time are spent on, uh, open source and Phoenix development. Oh, yeah. And, uh, since, since I've been there, since it's come up on maybe six months, I've been almost entirely full-time on Phoenix. Uh, so it's been, um, you know, n- none of this, uh, present stuff would have happened, you know, without their support. So it's, so I, I owe them a huge thank you. So a good way to support you supporting Phoenix would be to potentially to buy services from Dockyard. Oh, certainly. Certainly. <laughs> Dockyard.com slash services, full project design, engineering, the full gamut. Yeah. Yep. We awesome. love companies that support open source. And, you know, we talked earlier about how the, the beauty of it is everybody else's applications and projects get better by this shared yeah. effort. And so companies that allow, allow that shared effort, you know, allow really, we all thrive based on it. So huge shout out to them for doing that. And for all companies that are putting their money, uh, their hard earned money behind open source projects is a way yeah. of sustaining the ecosystem. That's yep. Awesome. And the same with, uh, you know, Jose's gone, but Platformer Tech, uh, yep. Jose's company for sure. It's like, you know, obviously Phoenix wouldn't have happened without uh, Jose and Platformer Tech because uh, they took the even crazier position of not only, you know, saying, okay, let's support this web framework. But, you know, Jose had this crazy idea to, to write his own language and take, yeah. you know, a couple of years off to do that. Uh, so we owe them a huge thank you as well. Absolutely. That's an interesting story too. We mentioned that in the early show that, uh, you know, you, both of your backstories and in that show with Jose, he, he talked a bit about how they were betting on it early and how he was working on the side and, and then, you know, they started using it and it sort of took over, um, so if you want to listen to that, what's uh, episode number again, Jared? Episode 194 for Jose's and 
147 for Chris's show. That's so right. go back and listen to those. Before I forget, I'll just say my uh, so my my uh, keynote from LixirConf uh, Europe is actually online now. So we'll okay. include that awesome. in the show notes. And that'll take you through. I kind of pay it forward by walking through how CRDTs work to give you kind of this mental model without having to read research papers. Right. Uh, so if you're interested in CRDTs, that'd be a good talk to watch. Well, I think your conversation today on that subject opened some ears for sure. Um, but it was good to have you back on the show, especially to catch back up. It is kind of crazy. It's been a year since you were on the show, and I kind of enjoyed just sitting back, hearing uh, all this goodness, because uh, as Jared's mentioned, he's building the, the CMS, and it's uh, the future of the change log and what we're doing here. So it's it's great to have you back on, and Jose as well, to talk through you know the underlying technology that's building our future, which is just, to me, is just uh, such an awesome feeling, honestly, to, to, to have that and to share that with you guys. Yeah, well, appreciate it. And uh, you know where to find me online if you have problems. And also maybe maybe six months, a year from now, we can talk about, you know, Phoenix Phoenix Next and our awesome service discovery. So, Only one thing I want to mention before we close, and it's it's a shame so, uh, Jose's not here anymore, but uh, you can pass the message to Chris or he can listen in the, in the uh, produce show that goes out. Uh, when we had uh, Matt's on the show, we had Matt's on episode 202, Mm-hmm. And Matt's is a fan of Elixir, so that would probably get Chelsea pretty excited. He even said on the show too, so that was good. That's awesome. And he listened to Jose's show one nine four. Right. So big, big stuff there. But uh, I guess let's let's close the show. So if that's it, fellas, we can we can go ahead and say goodbye. Sounds good. Goodbye. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jose. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having us. I'm Jose Valin. And I'm Chris McCord. And you're listening to the Change Log. Come on, Chris! <laughs> I'm Jose Valin. And I'm Chris McCord. And you're, and listening, you're listening to the Change Log. <laughs> Don't laugh, man. <laughs> <laughs>